On Pop Fiction Women, we explore what it means to be a complicated woman. Tired of endless variations of leading men next to one-dimensional archetypes of women or strong female leads written by men that were essentially guys in women's bodies. We started this show to highlight the many female characters in entertainment worth exploring, as well as the women who dreamt them up. And now we're adding those creators to our conversations, discussing their process and passion in bringing these women to life. Welcome to Complicated Conversations. On these episodes, there's no spoilers. So come on, it's starting. So today we are talking with Alka Joshi, New York Times bestselling author of The Henna Artist. She is a graduate of Stanford University and received her MFA from the California College of the Arts. She has worked as an advertising copywriter, a marketing consultant, and an illustrator. Alka was born in India. Her family came to the United States when she was nine, and she now lives on California's Monterey Peninsula with her husband and two misbehaving pups. Welcome to Pop Fiction Women, Alka. We're so excited excited to talk to you about your newest novel today, The Secret Keeper of Jaipur. Thank you, Kate. I'm excited to be here. So we are going to get to both of your books we're going to talk about a little bit because they naturally go together. But we have recently interviewed two Reese Witherspoon picks prior to their publication date. So as you know, they couldn't talk about it and it was all done in secret. And although we loved these books and believed in them, we had no idea they would soon be catapulted. You know, the way books are when Reese puts that yellow sticker on your book as she did with the henna artist. So we'd love to first hear a little bit about that experience, how you found out that you were going to be a Reese Book Club pick and any highlights that you have about that. So my book was scheduled for release on March the 10th, 2020. And on March the 11th, 2020, the World Health Organization said that COVID was a a major global pandemic and we all needed to shelter in place. What that meant, of course, is that we no longer were going out to stores. We were asking for everything to be brought to us. And Amazon was a major supplier of toilet paper, paper towels, and bar soap. They stopped shipping out books. The bookstores closed down. The libraries closed down. Nobody could get books. The only things that they could get, which were easy to download, were digital copies, so e-copies or audiobooks. And then, of course, there were folks who had gotten the advanced reader copies, who had been reading it and reviewing it and talking talking about it on social media. And so I was in the throes of a major depression because I had spent the last 10, 12 years of my life putting that first book together, The Henna Artist, and getting deeper and deeper and deeper into these characters and deeper into the scenes and so on. And I really was looking forward to the day when I could finally talk to readers about it. And as it turned out, I couldn't talk to a single reader. So I was relying on social media. I was still talking about it on social media. I was still saying to people, hey, you guys, I'm on lockdown too. So if you want to uh, uh, get a hold of me, if you want to do any kind of a discussion with me, please do. So to date, I have done over 430 book clubs. And these are groups of sometimes no more than six, sometimes as many as 100. So at the same time that I was doing all of this, I get a call from Kathy, my editor at Mira Books. And she says, Elka, I need you to sit down because I'm going to tell you something amazing. Oh boy. And I thought, You know, after all the ups and downs of the 10 years that it took me to do this book, I thought for sure she was probably going to tell me, okay, you know what? The warehouse has burned down and all of your books are gone. (laughs) (laughs) And it turned out that what she was actually going to tell me is that Reese Witherspoon was going to announce my book on May the 1st. I was not allowed to tell anybody about her book club pick for May 2020. And then for the next four weeks, I was supposed to work with the Hello Sunshine staff and help them populate their social media with my content about the book. So what it did for me is it wasn't as much craziness as I could have gotten into or nervousness about finally getting to talk to Reese on May the 1st and having this be a book club pick. I was actually really busy working with her staff and we were doing cooking videos. Uh, We did a henna video, um, applying henna and applying henna designs with a henna artist down in Los Angeles. And I was busy uh, making up a Maharani cocktail with my brother for the older Maharani who likes to uh, drink her gin and tonics. I mean, it was a busy month. And then suddenly, 
suddenly May 1st was here and I was actually going to talk to the Reese Witherspoon. It was crazy making, but just for that morning. And you know, I almost blew it because I thought I was going to just ease into the Instagram live. Well, something happened in my brain and I totally forgot how to do an Instagram live at the moment I was supposed to be on there with her at 10 o'clock in the morning Pacific time. I totally forgot how to get on live. And I was like, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God. You know, this is like my one big chance to talk to readers and to talk to uh, especially the Reese Book Club readers about my book and I'm going to blow it. So I finally, I had to call Dominic uh, on my phone and say, you know, over at uh, Reese's Book Club and say, Dominic, please help me walk me through this and calm me down because I am freaking out. So he did. And then meanwhile, Reese was trying to make up time waiting for me to come on because she was saying, yeah, now we're going to be talking to our author. And so there's these moments where, you know, she's just sort of filling in the gap and finally we're able to connect. So it did happen and it was amazing to me. And I wasn't at all nervous while she and I were talking because I think that she makes people feel so comfortable and she is like your neighbor next door. She's not like some, you know, celebrity with all of her polish and highfalutin attitude or anything. She's totally the girl next door. And so she makes it really easy to talk about the book. She asks questions and I know she reads every single book that she picks. So um, so I knew that when she was asking me specific questions about the henna artist, she was had absolutely prepped for it and read the whole thing. And then I found myself getting really choked up at the end of our interview because I remembered what she had said so long ago when she accepted her award for best actress for her performance in Walk the Line. That was a movie I had just loved and I think it's still one of her finest performances. And it stuck with me what she said. She just said in her acceptance speech, I want to matter. That's all I want in my life. I want to matter. And I just thought, oh my God, I do too. That is what I want. That is That really describes what I want in my life. I just want to matter. At the end of my life, I want to have been here and have done something and helped somebody gain something in their life or have changed their life as a result of something I've done. And now with the success of the henna artist, I am hearing from readers all over the world who tell me exactly that. You have inspired me to change my life or to do something different with it or to reconnect with my mother. Uh, and, you know, because this is a book about women, to reconnect with my girlfriends, to reconnect uh, with my daughter. Oh, I love all of that. It's such a fundamental human need and also how refreshing it is to hear it because we don't we don't say those things. We don't say, I want to matter because I think everyone is driven by the fear that you won't. And so, yeah, how beautiful. That was beautiful. Thank you, Corinne. I do think that it is a fundamental need that all of us women have to be seen, to be heard, and to be counted. And I think that we all want to be more than just wives and mothers. We really just want to be seen in our own physical presence as people who have something to contribute to this life. So I think that that is something that I try to imbue in the lives of the women in both the henna artists and in the secret keeper. These are women just struggling to be heard, to be seen, and to fight for some modicum of independence within that limited life that they are given. Yeah, and you do that so well. We're going to talk about the women in your stories. First, I guess we should just say, I mean, after the success of The Henna Artist, it was clear your readers and your publisher wanted to hear more about these characters and this story. So now you have this second installment, The Secret Keeper is out, and then we know there'll be a third. This will be a trilogy. So can you just tell our readers who haven't yet read it a little bit about The Secret Keeper? Sure. Kate, I never ever once thought that I would be writing a trilogy, much <laughs> less one book. So if you had told me this in my, even in my 50s, I'd be writing a trilogy, I would have just laughed and said, oh no, that's never going to happen. But here's what happened. Because I spent so long with all of these characters, they live in my head. They are like a second family. They are constantly talking to me. So Malik was talking to me. And uh, after we 
put the uh, henna artist to bed and he said, you know, okay, now you can tell my story. I had already written so many pages of Malik's story, his backstory and his future story in the henna artist that never made it into the final book. Because, you know, you've got editors who say, this is not relevant. This is not relevant to your main story. So cut this out, cut this out, cut this out. So a lot of his story got cut out, as did a lot of Radha's story and as did a lot of actually Lakshmi's backstory. So as I started to write Malik's story, it came pouring out. And I realized that in this story, Malik is an adult. Now, here is how the story develops for me. It starts with a scene first. Okay, so here's the scene that I saw when Malik is chomping at my brain. So I see from the point of view of a woman who is setting up her stall at the Shimla Mall. This is a large pedestrian mall in Shimla up at the foothills of the Himalayas. And it is where all the tourists walk so that they can see Christchurch. They can go to the library where Rudyard Kipling used to hang out. They can see the Mahatma Gandhi statue, you know, all of these sort of historical points. And Shimla used to be the British capital during the summers in Rajasthan. So it had its own prominence. So I see this woman, she's setting up her wares at this stall. In her sight line are these two people walking toward her and they are walking toward her with intention as if they are making a beeline for her stall. It is a man and a woman. And as they come closer, and I really do see this almost like a film in my head, as they come closer, I realize that the woman is Lakshmi and she's about 40 something and the boy is Malik and he is 20. So they could be mother and son if you see them from afar and then as they come closer they start inspecting this woman's wares then in my imagination I look down to my left and there's a basket in which two little kids are playing and I realize that these are the woman's children the woman who mans the stall and then I turn around from Malik and Lakshmi's point of view and I see who this woman is she is uh, about Malik's age maybe a little bit older and these are her kids who are in the little basket. And then I have to ask myself these questions. What is she selling? Why are these two people interested in her? And I also notice in this little film that's playing out in my head that Malik and this woman have a connection. And I'm not sure what it is, but there is some kind of a connection between the two of them. So that has to get answered. What is that connection? And then I also see Lakshmi is disapproving of this connection. And then I have to try to figure out why is she disapproving of this connection. I also see that this woman is uh, head to toe in some kind of tribal gear. So then I start researching all of the nomads who travel along the Himalayan trails and somehow encounter Shimla and some of the other major cities along the way. And as they bring their sheep and their goats and their water buffaloes down into that area, you can see them in all their finery. They dress very differently from the other folks who live in that area. And I thought, oh, She's one of them. And so that's kind of how this whole story starts for me. So in The Secret Keeper, what happens is that as Lakshmi realizes there is a connection between Malik and this other woman, Malik has just finished his boarding school education, courtesy of Samir Singh from the first book. And he is a well-turned-out man. He is no longer that scruffy boy he used to be. Now he's all polished. So she wants to make sure that he does not get involved in a marriage or with a woman who already has two children until he has something under his belt that's like a career. So she sends him down to Jaipur. She connects him back to Manu, who is the husband of Kanta. Kanta and Manu had adopted that baby, Nikki. And Manu is the director of palace facilities. So Malik is now an apprentice to the Jaipur palace. He is learning about construction. The Maharanis are building all kinds of interesting buildings all over Jaipur. And this is in line with all of the rebuilding that's going on all over India. 20 years after independence to give India new economic life. So Malik realizes that there are some nefarious things going on. There's some secrets uh, being withheld from people. And uh, so he sets out trying to figure out what is going on really beneath the surface. And as he does, he realizes that they, these secrets are jeopardizing the lives of people whom he loves. Manu, Kanta, and Nikki, namely, but also uh, his beloved back in Shimla. So this whole story is more of a, a mystery than the first book was. 
And the mystery is all about Malik uncovering the secret or the many secrets and then also enlisting Lakshmi's help in uh, getting him to that point. Well, you have already touched on so many things that we want to ask you about and talk about that you're already ahead of us because you know what will draw readers in in this book. But So I want to stay on the secrets and the lies and, and the unraveling the mystery part of it. I wanted to know why you decided to do that this time where you were, again, maybe it just came to you. Did you know that that's how you wanted to drive this story? Because it adds such richness and complexity to a story, but there's ways to do that without it. So what drew you to that for this one? Corinne, I don't even plan out the story first. It it reveals itself to me in scene after scene after scene. And so after that first scene, I saw Malik back in Jaipur. And of course, the first place I saw him was in Samir's uh, house and on his lawn talking to Samir. And then I thought, oh, what's he talking to Samir about? Oh, and by the way, who is this coming through the veranda doors? It's Sheila. And I realized, oh, Ravi and Sheila are married now and they have these two little kids. And so the story just kind of builds from there. And then I realized that Ravi has turned out to be exactly what he thought he would be, which is a reflection of his own father, the boy who is rich and whom nobody can touch. And so it doesn't matter what he does. He is sort of uh, Teflon coated. And so we know that at that point, I thought, okay, what is he Teflon coated about this time? And then I thought, oh, you know what? I think it's going to be something involving something he's doing that is just of his own doing not Samir's doing, but something he's taken upon himself, which is going to jeopardize the safety of people in one of the buildings that they're building. So that's kind of how it goes. It just goes from scene to scene to scene, and it builds like that. I know a lot of writers who plot out the entire book before they actually start writing, and I don't think I can ever write like right. that. You're, you're like, that's laughable. Well, what yeah. about the points of view, Kate? Yeah, so, I mean, you mentioned that this is Malik's story, but in a addition, as you've pointed out, Lakshmi is still an integral part of the story, but we also now are introduced to Nimi. Am I saying that right? Yes, Nimi. The, yes. the woman who I guess you saw in the first scene there yes, exactly. at the stall. So she is the young tribal woman who he falls in love with. She's right. a widow, a mother right. of these two children who you also somehow just envisioned. Um, <laughs> I just, I'm just still in all of that. And so, you, yes, we learned that she tragically lost her husband and she's now forced to provide for herself, which is no easy feat given her circumstances. And it seems from the start that she and Lakshmi have a complicated relationship. So we'd love to hear more about your development of Nimi and, and then also why you wanted to structure the story from their three points of view, yeah. Malik, Lakshmi and Nimi. That's a great question. So I had to answer these questions about Nimi. Why is Nimi not with her tribe? And then I realized, oh, it's because she's widowed. And then I realized, you know what? In order for her to be a partner of Malik's, she has to be a formidable opponent to Lakshmi. Because, you know, we know that as much as we love Lakshmi, as much as we like her independent spirit, we also know that she wants to control the outcome of Radha's future and also Malik's future. Because, you know, she has that in her. She wants to plan. She's a planner. And she has ideas about what Radha's future should look like and what Malik's future should look like. So we know that in order for her to stand up against Nimi, Nimi is going to have to be equally as compelling and equally as strong. So I thought, how can I make Nimi this very strong character? And I thought, oh, she would have to be a very strong nomadic woman to be able to say to her father-in-law, I do not want to be with the tribe any longer. I don't want my children to have the same fate as my husband did on these treacherous treks, because they are treacherous. They are going through narrow mountain trails, which their goats and sheep can traverse easily, but which they sometimes times have accidents in. Uh, so she has to be formidable in order to be able to stand up to her own tribe and say, look, I don't want to do this anymore. I'm going to make a living here in this town and keep my children safe. So I already knew that she's going to have this strength in her, the strength of Lakshmi, but in a very different way. She's younger. And so she has less, I think, she has less to, to really lose, right? She's lost everything essentially by losing her husband. And and going up against Lakshmi, she has less to lose than maybe somebody else who had a position or who had a caste that they belong to. These people don't belong to a caste up in the nomadic tribes. So she's not afraid of Lakshmi's higher caste. That's kind of how Nimi started.
started developing. And then I realized, you know, Nimi also has this other strength, which is she knows the mountains backwards and forwards, and she knows how to get up in the mountains. And so, you know, if she has some reason to go up into the mountains, she'll be able to do that, no problem. And then I started doing research on also what's happening up in the Himalayas at this time in 1969. And what's happening is there's a lot of gun running, gold running, and drug running. And then I thought, oh, gold running. Now that's interesting because I'm crazy about jewelry, as you can tell. <laughs> and so, you know, and my mother was crazy about jewelry. I think that's where I get my jewelry obsession from. And so I thought, okay, let me look into this gold running. Then I found out that India, which is so obsessed with gold, I mean, pure gold is so important for a wedding dowry. And people go nuts shopping for wedding dowry gold and making sure that what they give to their daughter-in-law is better than what their neighbor gave to their daughter-in-law and so on. There's a lot of keeping up with the Joneses on that. And so I thought, oh, this is kind of interesting. But then I realized most of the gold in India is not even mined in India. It is brought in illegally because if they brought it in legally and they are allowed to only bring in certain amounts legally, they have to pay duty tariffs on those. And so it's brought in illegally. Well, how is it brought in? In the same way you might envision drugs being brought in. All of the various strange, weird ways. You know, sometimes they will uh, pad their clothing with uh, bars of gold. Sometimes they actually will swallow nuggets of gold, and you can imagine where it comes out the other end. And then there are these ideas, and I just read this one tiny little reference to sheep carrying some of that gold. And I thought, oh, this is where the nomads come in. And so that's when I started thinking, okay, now how can I marry what is happening up in the Himalayas and what Nimi can get involved with, with what Malik is going to get involved with down south in Jaipur. So that's kind of, you know, how that whole thing came about. And I loved researching all about India's gold. Have you seen all of these Indian women with all of their pure gold, you know, when they go to weddings and things, you know, the bangles, the necklaces, the earrings. Oh my gosh, it's a whole extravaganza of jewelry. Yes. In the Henna Artist, in the acknowledgments section, you wrote this novel for your mother. She had an arranged marriage at 18 and three children by the age of 22. This is what you wrote. She never had the opportunity to choose whom to marry, when to marry, whether to have children, whether or not to continue her studies, or what she would do with her life. But she made sure that I could make all of those choices for myself. I mean, that's just beautiful. I really wanted to read that paragraph. But I also wanted to bring it back to this book. So did you feel like you were continuing to imagine that life for your mother? Or did Lakshmi really take on her own really go with your imagination in The Secret Keeper? So in The Secret Keeper, you know, Lakshmi is very much the same person that she was in The Henna Artist. She is continually making sure that she matters, you know, that she is doing things that are helping to heal people. So that's why she continues working on her healing garden. And she enlists Nimi's aid in helping her expand that garden for more of the higher mountainous herbs and flora up there. So I think she does that as a way to also placate Nimi and maybe to see if Nimi's children could be educated. The nomadic tribes don't have any schooling that they can go to because they're, they travel seasonally from summer to winter up and down the mountains. So they don't have a particular place that they can send their children to school. Many of them are illiterate as Nimi is. But I think that Lakshmi is kind of testing the waters a little bit with Nimi. First of all, she's saying, look, I'm sorry I sent Malik away, but maybe this is a way that I can make up for it. How about if I employ you in the healing garden to help me expand it with your knowledge? And then we can also at the same time, maybe teach your children how to read because I can spend an hour at lunchtime a day helping you do that. And I think she's trying to see whether Nimi is open to these suggestions. And also I think trying to apologize in a way to say that I know you miss him. I know you miss Malik, but believe me, it's for the best of both of you that I'm trying to do this. Lakshmi hasn't changed in that way. She is still nurturing in her own way with people, even if she doesn't have her own children. And she, as you know why, why she doesn't, but even if she doesn't have her own children, she is always looking out for people and trying to do the best that she can for them. So I think that's what she's trying to do. Now, towards the end of The Secret Keeper, we do see a change in Lakshmi as she realizes, as I think a lot of parent figures do realize, that they have to let go. 
they have to let go. There comes a point in your adult child's life, or in this case, Lakshmi's ward, Malik, when you just have to say, okay, I'm going to leave you to your own devices. You can make mistakes on your own. You will learn from them. And you know where that comes from is my dad, because I had to convince my dad, even though I think my mother always knew that I would be fine. She had sort of raised me to be very independent. I think my father was always afraid that I would make the wrong choices in life. And I would have this talk with my dad over and over again, where I would say, dad, you have to let me go. You keep saying that you don't want me to make the same mistakes that you did. But dad, I have to make my own mistakes in order to learn from them. I have to make my own mistakes. If you protect me my whole life, what does that say about me? What does that say about my life? And so I wanted to convey some of that in here. And I hope that parents and parent figures hear that and see that and, you know, maybe absorb some of what I'm trying to say about adult children. (laughs) And also feel seen in the struggle. Just because you're struggling with it doesn't mean it's not the right thing to do still. That is very insightful. Yes, that struggle is a very real struggle and you can absolutely see both sides of it. Yeah, but you hear parents, if it's a struggle, you think, oh, well, then clearly they're not ready. If I still feel apprehensive, I think you're always going to feel apprehensive. (laughs) You're always going to feel that way. So you just got to do it. Rip the bandaid off. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You know, here I am. I'm 63 years old. My dad still calls me to find out how I am and, you know, is everything okay? (laughs) So actually, this is a good segue because I'd like to turn a little bit to your story. We love a good second act story here. And we know from your bio that your career as a New York Times bestselling author is your second act. We'd love to hear more about your path to publication. And I do want to read um, from your acknowledgments. Clearly someone in your family knew uh, you had this in you. You said, years ago, my husband, Bradley J. Owens, saw something in me that led him to believe I could be a writer. And here I am with both my profession and my partner in life. How did I get so lucky? Yeah, I love that. It's so (laughs) sweet. So, but also he did and he saw something, you followed it and, and clearly it was much later in life after you'd had a very successful career. So tell us more about that. Well, I think that the partner you choose in life is so important to the rest of your life. And what I saw, I think in my early experience, you know, in my twenties and thirties, I saw women getting married to somebody because they wanted a family. You know, that was their main goal. And I didn't, I never had that goal because I never had the urge, the biological urge to have children. And so I waited a long time to, I think, find somebody that I felt very compatible with. And that was Brad. And by the time I met him, I was 37. And really what I wanted was a partner in life who would take responsibility for his own actions the way I take responsibility for mine. And I also wanted to be with somebody who would champion my successes as much as I could champion his. You know, I see oftentimes we women are relegated to the cheerleader role for both our husbands and our children. And I think that we need to step out of that role and really say, this is me in my own space, doing my own thing. And I want to also be recognized for it, right? This is all the part of how I wanna matter. And so I picked a partner whom I knew would not be intimidated by my successes. When I met him, I had started my own business and it did super, super well. And my first year out, we were just doing super well. And it was really nice to be with somebody who said, oh my God, Alka, this is so great. You are doing amazing things. This is fantastic and so on. And so when he started recognizing, because he's a writer also, you know, he went through the Stanford writing MFA and at the time that I had met him and he said, you know, I think you can do this. I think you can write. And I would say, no, I'm just an advertising hack. I'm just a marketing hack. I don't really, you know, do this kind of thing. He said, Elka, I believe in you. I think you can do this kind of thing because you make up great stories about people and you tell stories all the time. So then I think it took me about 15 or 16 years to finally believe that maybe he was right. And that was when I finally enrolled in an MFA program. And I started taking first evening workshops, uh, writing workshops. I didn't even 
even know what they were about. But then I realized that everybody in your class is going to look at your work and you're going to look at their work and then you're going to get feedback. And that was really comfortable for me because you get a lot of different people's opinions. It's not just one person's opinion about what you're writing. And I always got a lot of really positive feedback on what I was writing. So that's when I thought, okay, I'm going to invest in a two-year program and really learn how to write a novel. So that's when I did that. But guess what? I could not have written the first novel uh, in my 20s, 30s, or 40s because I didn't know enough about myself. I didn't know enough about people. I didn't know enough about how to handle grief and loss and embarrassment and belittlement and the uh, the groping hands of men in my career. <laughs> and so these are all things that I kind of had to learn and then incorporate into my writing as I finally understood them, as I finally was able to deal with a lot of them. So that's when all of this sort of came together all at once. And I also, I think because I was older, I could reach out to my older faculty and say, hey, can I have coffee with you? I wasn't intimidated by them, you know, in other words, but I was oftentimes the oldest person in my MFA classes, you know, so I'm sure everybody else was looking at me like, what's grandma doing in this class? <laughs> what does she have to say? What in She's the world is an older? <laughs> a future New York Times bestseller. Yeah, that's, that's what she has. <laughs> I love what you, I, I just want to go back to one thing you said about your husband too. I love that you automatically think it goes both ways. I want to cheer him on. He is going to cheer me on because I don't think, although that is traditionally the role is the woman is the cheerleader. The idea of flipping flipping it is better to me than keeping the old role. But at the same time, I mean, I think that is the real goal is to both be able to shine and support. And maybe that's at different times in your lives, your careers or whatever. But at that mutual respect and adoration is really the goal. And that's just beautiful to hear you talk about it. You also obviously could be an amazing writer or are an amazing writer, but I can see what he sees in this. Your imagination is just stunning. And you express yourself well. And that was something you had had in your first career uh, as well. So I can see it. Not that I'm pretending to, to, <laughs> to have spotted something shocking, but, but it just, it is you. It is the essence of you. It, it really is. And I think that that comes through in your writing and the way you talk. And I think, Corinne, part of this also was because I was an artist. You know, I spent so much of my life thinking I'm going to be an artist someday. And I was sketching and drawing and constantly imagining different things that I was going to paint or draw so that when it came time to write, I almost write as if I'm painting. I write as if it's visual. Like I told you, books come to me as scenes. And so I'm actually watching a film. I see the full color. I see, you know, the whole environment around me. I see people's clothing. I see, you know, their gestures. Yeah, I wanted to talk about this. This was my next question because I had met you at the Northern California Writing Retreat this year, the virtual one. Something that has really, really stayed with me was what you showed of how visual your work is. You have binders of pictures and like you're just saying gestures. You see all of this. And it's a really important part for you to write. And that really stayed with me. And I was wondering if you thought that came from, like you're saying, being an advertising, being an artist. It's just the way you see things. I'd love to hear more about that. Oh, yeah. I have things and now everything is digital. So I have folders and I have files of visual things. So as I was writing the first book and the second book, I have visual uh, scenes of streets in Jaipur and in Shimla. I have visuals of jewelry. I have visuals of the nomads. I have visuals of henna being drawn. I put all of these things in different files. And it's not as if I go back and look at all of these pictures, but as long as I have put them in a file, I will remember them visually. And so then when the scenes come to me, they have incorporated bits and pieces probably of a lot of this visual in the scene that I'm envisioning. So there is something that we miss a lot that young writers miss a lot in writing. And that is a sensory input. I think that a lot of people say, you know, I went to the grocery store and I picked up some groceries and then I talked to Ted. But what about where were you? 
in the grocery store? What did the grocery store smell like? Were you intoxicated by the hot food that was being sold at the counter next to the entrance? Were you watching the woman in front of you in line? Did she have a scarf on that was particularly resonating with you? And you thought, oh, I should get a scarf like that too. You know, there's so many different ways uh, with our sight, our smell, our sound, our touch that we can incorporate into our writing. There's so much we can incorporate that we don't, that I think maybe young writers don't. And so for me, it's a real natural because that's the way I see the world. I just envision it in all of its entirety, its sensory entirety. So yeah, I do think that it's a natural for me to incorporate a lot of that. And I love doing it because I want to be in the scene as much as the reader does. <laughs> yes. Yeah. No, like I said, that has really stayed with me seeing your files and, and your pictures and like, okay, this is who I see and this is what they're wearing and this is where they live and here's the structure and have really stayed with me. Oh, good. Yeah. And then how about seeing that come to life? Kate, you want to talk about the adaptation? Uh, yes. Yes. We've heard in addition to you working on the third book in the trilogy that there is the screen adaptation of the henna artist underway and that Frida Pinto is set to star and produce the adaptation, which is amazing. So just tell us a little bit about that process and maybe what role you'll play, because obviously the authors, some are very hands-on, some are very hands-off, so we'd love to hear more about that. So this is the power of Reese. On May 1st, 2020, I talked to Reese. By May 15th, I was getting calls and emails from producers who wanted to buy the option for the book. And I said help to my literary agent who then had me sign on with a screen management company in Hollywood. And Ellen Goldsmith, who is the CEO of the Gotham Group there, really has sort of walked me through the whole process. Here's what it entails. Uh, here's what we're going to do. The first question you have to answer, Alka, is whether you want the henna artist to be a book or a, a TV, uh, to be a movie or a TV series series. And I said, oh gosh, you know, I really want a TV series. I want another one of those bingeable shows that I love yes. to watch uh, <laughs> on Netflix or Amazon or Hulu. And so she said, great. So she talked to all of the uh, production teams and she said, this is what the author wants. And then they come back with a proposal. Now I got to zoom in with all of the production teams and to talk to them, ask them what their vision of it was, why they were so interested in producing the henna artist. Just because somebody thinks that they can produce it, it may, they may not have the right team put together to make that happen. And when I got to Michael Edelstein's team, I felt a comfort there with them that was just hard to ignore. Michael Edelstein is a very savvy producer. He was in charge of NBC Universal Studios in London when Downton Abbey was getting filmed. And so he's largely responsible for the global product that it became. And when he read The Henna Artist, he said, this could be an Indian Downton Abbey. Mm. We Because you've got the upstairs, That's a pitch. you've got the downstairs, yeah. all of the different stories of all these different characters. And each one has a story that's woven throughout the narrative. And then you've got the whole setting of Jabor and Shimla, and then you've got cast and class and colorism. You've got everything in this. We could turn this into a gorgeous TV series. And then he called up his friend Frida Pinto. Now he and Frida have known each other for years and they go to the same ashrams in India together. So uh, so he said, Frida, you've got to read this. Think about being Lakshmi uh, in this. And so she read it and she said, oh my gosh, I love this. And I really want to bring South Asian stories to life on a screen. So so this would be one of my first ones that I would do. And so she is very excited about it. And then Michael had a first look deal with Miramax TV. So then they were excited and they were on board. So that was the team that I spoke to initially. And I am just delighted with them. They keep me in the loop about what is going on. My role is as an executive producer, but that is just a fancy way of saying I am sometimes consulted and sometimes not. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's all right. And Seems like it's in good hands. <laughs> yeah, I think it's in really good hands. And that's where I wanted to leave it because I don't know about screenwriting. You know, that's a whole different animal. And I would like to learn, however, so that uh, when we entertain any offers for The Secret Keeper and for book number three, uh, that we are going to, that maybe I will get to write the screenplay. So I do want to learn from the first set of series that we do, how I might be able to write the screenplay. I don't think it's, you know, rocket science, but 
I do want to learn how they leave every episode on a cliffhanger and how they move on and also how they parse an entire story into six or eight episodes, season after season after season. Right. Each one has to have an arc and then the season has to have an arc and then next season. And yeah. But with your visual mastery, I feel like that will be an asset for you in in figuring that out when the time comes for you. (laughs) You know, when I was in advertising, I have to tell you this. When I was in advertising, I was a copywriter. So I wrote the dialogue of the radio spots and then, of course, worked with the art director on how we were going to envision TV commercials. So it was easier for me to sketch out what I was seeing in my head than it was to explain verbally to my art director how I was seeing this commercial. And I remember one time my boss, my creative director, caught me doing little sketches and she said, don't let anybody know that you know how to do both things, uh-huh. copy and <laughs> right. uh, and art. Otherwise, right. they're going to have you do that all the time. And I was so startled, like, oh, what, it's it's not allowed? Is that, is that not allowed? <laughs> Different sides of the brain. Most people are not blessed with both. <laughs> right? So a question that we ask all of our authors, we casually dabble in astrology on Pop Fiction Women. And mostly we are just interested in finding out a little bit more about each of our creators. That's what we're really, I mean, we love the books we read, the TV shows and the movies, but we're always really fascinated by the creators like like you. And so we like to find out some more nuggets. I, I don't know if you are interested in astrology or what your feelings of it are, but I, we always ask, what is your sign and do you relate to it? So my sign is Pisces. So it's a February sign. And I guess I relate to it in the sense that everything I ever read about Pisces, they are very creative and they are sensitive. And so I think maybe my artistic side comes from that. But what's more than that is Indian astrology is totally different from the Zodiac. And of course, I talk about Indian astrology in all of these books because it's such a big part of Indian culture. So the Indian astrology is only allowed to be done by Brahmin priests who are trained for years and years to do this. They take your birth date, your birth time, and a couple of other facts about you. And then they do all these mathematical equations to figure out what your life story is going to look like. And I had mine done in Paris by a Brahmin priest who was actually working as a cook in a, a an Indian restaurant. <laughs> so I don't know Tell how me. much... I don't know how much credence we can put uh, on this, but I used to frequent this one restaurant uh, right near Montmartre, and I got to know the proprietor. It was just a small little shop, a small little restaurant. And uh, one day he said to me that he had a Brahmin priest who did all of his cooking because he liked to travel the world, and wherever he ended up, he would go look for a job in an Indian restaurant. And, you know, there's Indian restaurants in every corner of the world. So I said, oh, well, could he do my, (laughs) you know, astrology? I've never had my chart done. So he did. And I think that what he said was pretty real. One of the things that he said was, I was very ambitious. And I always have been extremely ambitious. I always wanted to climb to the top of wherever it was I landed. And he said things like, you know, you will have some, not quite tragedy, but you'll have some hardships in your life, which I think I have had. And he said that I will never have to worry about money. Isn't that a wonderful thing to hear? He said, you'll never have to worry about money. You will always have money. And a couple of other things. And one of the other things that he said which has really bothered me my whole life is that I very foolishly asked him, when will I die? Because that is something that the astrology chart is supposed to tell you. And I think he said 71. So that doesn't give me a whole lot of time to finish everything I want to do. Oh, wow. I can't believe you asked that. I know I shouldn't have because, you know, it's like it's stuck here now in my brain and I need to actually propel it out because I think we can take things that are told to us and I I think we can pull them out, but I have not found a way to pull it out yet. If you guys think of a way, you let me know. Have you read the book, The Immortalists by Chloe Benjamin? Uh, The Immortalists by Chloe Benjamin. Four children, too young to know this. They go to, it's not astrology, but it's a psychic and they go to this 
woman and they ask each one of them asks when am I going to die and she tells each one of them and it becomes then you see their lives play out it's four points of view it's each section is each child and it really leaves the question did they cause their own yeah yeah or you know contribute to it or did it go it just without thinking and all four of them have really different points of view on it so it's a really it's an interesting book for that I think I have to read that yeah and over the pandemic my husband and I binge watched um, Indian Matchmaker and oh, yeah, she, yeah. My husband and I did that, too. <laughs> she did the charts, and, she, you know, if someone said, or she she went to someone who did them, and and if they said, nope, this isn't right, she wouldn't even, it was a non-starter for her. Yeah. So yeah. Uh, that's fascinating. Just like when my parents were married, their astrology chart was done. You have to do that for every arranged marriage. There's always an astrology chart that's done. And, you know, no matter what caste you are, you go to a Brahmin priest to have that done. Now, my parents, so my dad only told me this like five years ago, you know, long after my mother had died. He said, when your mother and I were first put together, arranged, there was an astrology chart that was done. And it turned out that we were not going to be a good match. So your grandfather sent your uncle out to get another chart done. And that one said we were going to be a good match. So then my parents did get married, and I think that in in some ways they were a good match, but in many ways they were not, and they eventually did divorce. So I don't know what to make of that. Like, like, you know, so I think, well, was the first astrology chart the right one? And then my grandfather manipulated the second one, like he paid somebody to do a better, more positive chart. I don't know. Right, but then also, how can you, I mean, it doesn't seem like that was a bad thing to manipulate the chart, right? Right. They had their lives. Yes, exactly. (laughs) Right? Oh, I never thought about it that way. That is really interesting. Yeah, yeah. And I have two amazing brothers. So, yeah. Yeah, see? Yeah. That's right. I remember them from the acknowledgments. Yes. I remember what my mother said to me, I think, before she died. She said, I don't regret marrying your father because he gave me three beautiful Mm. children. She mattered. Yeah. 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 And you know what? I don't know that my mother felt that she mattered while she was alive until she got a divorce and then she really blossomed and then I think she really did come into her own but now that I have sort of reimagined her life as Lakshmi the henna artist my mother is immortal yes oh oh my god that's beautiful isn't that amazing I just got tears in my eyes it's amazing like I wanted to reimagine her life but I never imagined she would be you know, gone before the book was published. Mm -hmm. And then I thought, oh my God, you know, but this is even better. Yes. And you get to share her with all of us so generously. (laughs) And you know, frankly, I don't want to leave my dad out of the equation either. Because I think my dad has been an amazing father and he really drilled in us this whole idea of education, reading books. Mm. And also I think he was a great assimilator. So one of the first things that he did when we came to this country is he said to us, Whatever you can glean from this culture, take it. Hmm. Whatever you think is going to help you in your life from this culture, go ahead and incorporate it into your life. Don't think that we have to stay 100% Indian, 100% you know, culturally true to us. Just do whatever you need to do for your life. Hmm. Just make sure that you get into great colleges and, <laughs> and you have an opportunity to have great lives afterwards. Yeah. Yes. Well, your acknowledgments and the secret keeper do not forget your dad so <laughs> some people so, in my uh, book clubs have asked me is Hari like your dad is he like your dad uh, no. and and you know this is the funny thing about writing I'm sure you guys have experienced this as writers as well characters come to you they're not exactly people you know in your life but they come to you and they have their own personalities I don't really know where they come from except mm-hmm. from your imagination so nobody in the book is exactly like somebody right. else I know in real life right and even the nuggets of truth have to take on a whole different they have to serve this story right no one that you take that kernel of truth from is going to serve the story that you're writing so you have to change it you have to make it into something completely different exactly 
Exactly. So Kate, do you want to just ask what? Yeah. So we always end by asking our authors what they're loving right now in terms of books or movies or TV shows, sort of what you're obsessing over that our listeners might like to hear about. Oh, okay. I just watched this amazing series on Amazon Prime, but I think it might be part of PBS Masterpiece. I don't know. It's called Witch Hunt and it is Swedish or Danish, you know, I'm not quite sure, but it's a fascinating uh, whistleblower kind of series. I think it's like 11 episodes or something. I love, I loved it because the characters surprise you in every single episode. They are evolving and you're learning secrets about them as we go along. So that was really fascinating. I just finished a book called, <laughs> and I'm, I'm going to forget, you know, I read like five or six books a month and I totally forget their names. I know. Oh. We've, we've discussed we this. We've this. had <laughs> authors I just can't. go completely blank. They can't remember a thing they've read or seen or anything and yes. I admitted to Corinne that people ask me embarrassingly what what have you what have you guys covered lately on the podcast I'm like um I mean I just did it and I can't right remember. right so uh, okay. another book that I read was the Chanel sisters by Judith Little mm. and I read that because of book number three which is all about fragrances Radha is living in Paris she is a perfumer she works in a lab and she works for a master perfumer. And I was just in New York to talk to a bunch of master perfumers and to visit one of the biggest fragrance labs in New York to learn you know, how this is done and how a lab works, how do people work in a lab, that kind of thing. So the Chanel sisters is Gabrielle, Coco Chanel and her sister Antoinette. So I wanted to know all about how they got started in this whole business and so on. So that was a really absorbing book. I kind of sped mm. through that. And then I have here the Bombay Prince by Sujata Massey, which is about, you know, it's a mystery taking place with a female lawyer in 1920s Bombay. Both of our books, The Secret Keeper of Jaipur and The Bombay Prince uh, that have come out this month. So that is that. Oh, and then of course, I always have my husband's book here, How I (laughs) Met You, which is, you know, Mm -hmm. a series of short stories. And I always keep it here because I really do think that Brad has been a huge inspiration for me in my life because he is such a good writer and he really understands scarcity of words and images. So he can communicate a lot in one sentence that it might take me three sentences to communicate. Right, right. I love that. that. Got his handy. That's very sweet. Yes. (laughs) Well, we've absolutely loved talking to you today. Thank you so much for taking time for us. If you haven't already fallen in love with The Henna Artist, that's out in paperback now. And then The Secret of Jaipur comes out June 22nd. It'll be out when this episode airs. So, Oh, wonderful. Thank you, Corinne. Thank you, Kate. I really, really, really appreciate your time and energy spent reading both books and helping authors to talk about them. Because, you know, this is the only way that we right now in this pandemic have had a chance to talk to readers is through these podcasts, the book clubs virtually, and yeah, all of these kind of events. It has been a blessing for us too. We want to let you know we've launched a Patreon page where supporters can receive perks like bonus episodes and exclusive content. Because Pop Fiction Women is our passion project, a place where we give women space to show up and offer in-depth analysis in the ways we're used to hearing about male creators and their characters. We delve into creativity and psychology with a dash of astrology, and we have so much fun doing it. Just two friends breaking down books, movies, and shows like Normal People, Fleabag, and I May Destroy You. Every single aspect of this podcast we do ourselves, from the preparation to the recording, from the editing to the social media promotion. So we're adding a Patreon platform because we want to keep making the show you love and hopefully expand it even further. So please consider becoming one of our most complicated fans and contributing on Patreon. To learn more, go to patreon.com forward slash popfictionwomen. This has been Pop Fiction Women with Corinne and Kate. If you enjoyed this show, please tell the complicated women in your life. And the men who love them. Yes, tell them to listen. And then to follow on Spotify or review and subscribe on Apple Podcasts. And of course, share on social media. Tag us with your favorite books, TV shows, and movies starring complicated women on Facebook and Instagram at 
Pop Fiction Women or on Twitter at pop underscore women. For more coverage of the women you love or to find out if you qualify as a complicated woman, go to popfictionwomen.com. And keep it complicated.